Psalms 33 is a wonderful psalm that is about the sovereignty of the Lord in creation and in history. It begins, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Anybody been declared to be righteous today? Rejoice! Be glad about it. For praise from the upright is beautiful. The Hebrew word there for praise actually means to sing. A hymn, to laud. It's tehillah in Hebrew. So tehillah from the righteous is beautiful. Verse 2, praise the Lord with the harp. The word there for praise is the word yadah, which means to use your hands. Uh, the Hebrew word for hand is yod. This is your yod. Let's all shake yods. No, I'm teasing you. So to express awe and reverence to the Lord, you use your yod. You yod all or all yod. <laughs> but you can do it with your hand on a harp, on a guitar. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. That word there is a lyre, a ten-string instrument, not L-I-A-R, but L-Y-R-E. A lyre is shaped kind of like a guitar without the neck, kind of like a vase. You know how a vase is broader at the bottom, like a pear kind of? Um, look at a guitar, you see how it's shaped? That shape goes back to a stringed instrument called the lyre, lyre-shaped. Make melody to him with a, with a lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Can you whisper and shout? Play skillfully. To play skillfully requires practice. Um, the worship team only practices when they're leading in worship. That's kind of rough. Kind of tough, isn't it? So making his praises glorious is a biblical thing. Tuning those instruments, I know the Bible says make a joyful noise, and God has musical laws beyond our comprehension, so everything he hears can be beautiful because it's about the condition of our heart, but we glorify him more when we put some work behind it, dust off that guitar, tune up that piano, and practice, 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 so you can play skillfully with a shout of joy. Um, Many times, the experience of leading worship is wonderful, but the experience of practicing can be even more wonderful. Uh, some young worship leaders often will get frustrated because in practice, they have a glorious time with the Lord, and they think they're having a prophetic experience as to what Sunday morning's going to be or, you know, whenever the congregation's going to meet. And it's not that way, and they get frustrated and mad at the congregation. Thank God we don't have any worship leaders around here like that. What it is, an indication God's enjoying your worship even when you're practicing. So enjoy it. And let each time you worship, whether it's leading folks or in your closet or in your practice chamber, let it be fresh and new and enjoy it. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now, those are instructions to us to worship. Now, here's reasons why. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work 
is done in truth. He don't make no junk. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Look around. If you don't see it, open your eyes. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This is Hebrew poetry. It'll say something, and then it'll say it again in different words. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. In case you didn't get the message, here it is again. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. See these couplets, doublets? Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually and considers all their works. So he doesn't make cookie-cutter Christians. We make cookie-cutter cookies, right? Like consistency in our baked products. But when it comes to being the people of God, we're diverse and he makes us righteous and is making us like him. And so that's why we don't have uniforms. Unity and faith to the Lord and diverse in our expressions of that faith. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. So he's watching us. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. May America never forget that we trust in God and not in our military might. We can brag about having the greatest army in the world, but we better say thank God for his mercy. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. My soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. So he starts out instructing us to worship the Lord and how to do that and then gives us reasons about it, about the greatness of God and then his greatness toward us as his people and his eyes on us. And then our response to that is we wait on him because he is our help and our shield. And because of that, our heart shall rejoice in him. So back to praising him because we've trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Let's pray.
Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that your word would come alive to us in such a way we walk differently than we came in here. And Lord, may we not forget, Lord, may, may the norm of a small percentage of what we hear being remembered, Lord, may that norm be stretched and we remember more than what is normal so that we can grow in you, Lord, from faith to faith and glory to glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Welcome to Generations Church and our current series called Wonderful Worship. In this series, we're not talking about our worship being wonderful, but we're talking about the one we worship being wonderful. His name is Wonderful. Wonderful worship is the purpose of human history. It's part of our purpose as humans, and in history, world history, we've been set up to become worshipers. The ultimate question in life is who will you worship? You might like to drink whiskey. You might like to drink milk. Remember Bob Dylan? You might like to wear cotton. You might like to wear silk. But when it's all said and done, you got to serve somebody. You're going to worship someone or something, if not yourself or your culture or the pop culture. But who will you worship is our question. We want to be people who worship Almighty God. So wonderful worship is a purpose of human history. The purposes of God cannot be stopped. Can you say unstoppable? God, let your glory go on and on. Psalms 33:11 again. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19:21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. Isaiah 14:24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. If we had time to go into the context of these verses, we could really bear out these truths. Part of his character. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Can't. His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? His unstoppable plans are sequential. There's an order to him. What he planned yesterday sets the stage for what he plans for today. What he planned at the foundation of the world set the stage for what happened with Adam and what happened with Noah and what happened with Abraham and Moses and David leading all the way through the stair steps, the steps of history, to the Lamb coming, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For precept, Isaiah 28.10, for precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. He echoes this truth again in verse 13. But the word of the Lord was to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. There's an order to things. It's how learning works, right? You learn one thing so you can learn another. You learn your ABCs so that you can read. Boy, was I thankful for that song that helped me to learn my ABCs. 
You can't learn math unless you know your numbers and how to count. And then double digits, otherwise you don't go very far with just single digits. Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So he declares the end from the beginning. Like an architect, God starts at the end, and then you back up to the beginning. So when you, you build, you have a sketch, a picture, a design. You don't just take off building, because who knows what you'll get. I mean, some churches you see like that, they didn't have a master plan when they started. A hodgepodge of, of stuff. But a wise builder starts with the end in mind. So it is with God. He starts at the end, and then backs up, you know, like my moonwalk, backs up to the beginning. Leaves us steps to walk in to fulfill his will. He calls a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Remember the story of the birth of Jesus? Who has a nativity set? In your nativity set, there's the wise men with their camels, right? When you set that up to be biblically accurate, you need to set those, those guys up in another room in the house. Because Jesus maybe was two years old when they arrived, all right? They didn't have jet travel. Oh, the Son of God's born. Let's hop on a plane. No, let's make the journey. We see the sign. So they traveled a long time. So it was set up in advance of their arrival, just in time when they needed to go to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod with the provision of the gifts that were brought to them by the wise guys. God's purposes include our redemption. Aren't you glad you're included in God's plans? His unstoppable plans are sequentially ordered, leading to your and my redemption. Ephesians, I love this, is one of a favorite passages in the Bible. I think they're all one of my favorites. But verse 3 of Ephesians 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every, can we say all of them? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So this is why we praise the Lord. He's blessed us and chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now we could be like a modern translation would say, he's predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. It's fine. But in Christ, in Christ, we're, we're the same. You understand that? I'm still a man, you're still a woman, you're still a boy, you're still a girl. Genders, he made two genders, they still exist, but in Christ there's no one higher than someone else. So while you are a daughter of the king, you're also a son of God. Why? Because that's a position of honor and authority. We corporately are the sons of God. 
corporately, we're the bride of Christ. We're not the brides of Christ. Ladies, you're not a bride of Christ. You're part of the bride of Christ. Men, as macho as you are, you are part of the bride of Christ. That's the church. All right, so he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So this points to our response, right? Our redemption demands a response, praise. God's not an egomaniac just wanting to praise, wanting praise from people, but he's wanting a relationship with people and has laid down track to reach us from Adam and onward in such a way that we won't want to not have a relationship with him. And so when someone is kind to you, the appropriate response is what? Right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain gratitude. This is a relationship. It's awesome. His glory goes on and on. It's, it's an awesome thing. So to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. All right, so his purposes include our redemption, and our redemption leads to our praising God. Verse 11 of Ephesians 1 goes on to say, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, somebody said in advance, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his Will. You could insert the word unstoppable will and it wouldn't violate the text because his will is unstoppable. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be, might exist for the praise of his glory. Why do you Christians praise so much? Change genders. Why do y'all praise the Lord so much? I do that sometimes and y'all miss it. Because he's worthy. He's redeemed us. He pursued us. He laid down track sequentially where my eyes would be open and I would see my need for a redeemer. So wonderful worship is the purpose of history. History is his story. It is. Now Jesus had an interesting conversation in John chapter 4 with a woman who was shacking up. She had had five failed marriages. She was with the sixth guy, and they weren't married. And she didn't get water in town. She went outside the town when people don't normally get water, the hottest time of the day, noon, to get water. And the Lord approaches her, has a conversation with her, and he, she, she uh, was impressed by him. And he, she said, man, you're, you're, you know, we know the Messiah is coming. And he said, go get your husband and let's talk. Well, I don't have a husband. And the Lord said, well, I know you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five, and the one you have right now is not your husband. So it was a relationship he didn't honor, per se. Did he honor her because she was a soul? 
wound up staying there three days, impacted the city because of her witness. Okay. So before, <laughs> before uh, she was won over by him, she thought, here, here comes the shame train. Uh, she deflected him by, say, by bringing up religious debate. Uh, you Jews say that we need to go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple, but we Samaritans say that we should worship here on Mount Gerizim, is what she was referring to. Gerizim, Gerizim. And <clears throat> the Jews had worshiped there. That was the Mount of Blessing where the, Mount, where the blessings were read out over the people. Great time. Great to be blessed, isn't it? But the plan of God is sequential. So they were stuck in the past when things had moved onward. And now the place of worship was in the, was in the temple. And Jesus said that the time was coming when the temple or on this mountain would no longer be an issue. Remember, truth is sequential. So in the progressive revelation of God in bringing the new covenant to the world, worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem was no longer going to be an important thing, and so her argument had no validity, really. And he went on to say, in verse 23 of John 4, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So notice the word spirit there for truth, spirit and truth, is a lowercase s. We have a spirit that's been born again. If you're a believer, your spirit's been born again, and your mind is being renewed. So you've been reborn, spirit has been reborn, and your mind is being renewed, and one day your body will be replaced. Amen. So, with a reborn spirit, we can now worship God in spirit, but also in truth, biblically, in accordance with our redemption, in accordance with the word of God. So that's where this thing was heading and is heading, that the true worshipers would be the kind of worshipers the Father's looking for, people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Now let's go back in time a little bit to redemptive history to um, Seth when he was born. The scriptures say, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. They were, he was the Adam's family's third son. It's true. Genesis 5, the man and woman were both named Adam. It was the husband that renamed his wife Eve. Anyway, that's a whole nother Bible study. But um, it's what sin does. We label each other. You, this, you, that. If you're in a debate with your spouse, you need to start your sentences with I. I own up to your problem. I have a problem. I am bothered by this situation. I'm bothered by where all the money's going rather than you are wasting our resources. That's for somebody. <laughs> anyway, so fast forward to Noah who finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the story of the ark, 
And, and fast forward to Abram, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, justified by faith. And he goes to a mountain to worship. In fact, the first two uses of the word worship in the Hebrew, which is the word shaka or shaka, shaka zulu, shaka is used by Abram when he bowed down before the angel of the Lord that visited his house, who prostrated himself, worship, and when he took his son for three days on a journey to a mountain to offer him in obedience to God as a sacrifice to God, trusting in his resurrection or in his substitution. For three days, he journeyed, and then he told the servants, wait right here, the lad and I go yonder and worship. We're going to go shaka. So redemptive history includes his story, his, his son Isaac's story, Jacob's story, Joseph's story, their story in Egypt, and then their story of deliverance through the leadership of Moses. While being led through Moses, Moses gets a plan to build a worship center, establish a priesthood through his brother's lineage, Aaron, and they would minister around this thing called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It had an outer court and then an inner court that was in two compartments, holy place and a holy, holiest of holies. If you see there on the right, uh, when you come in as a priest to minister to the Lord, there's the bronze altar. This is where sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. And then there's a bronze laver. This is where the priest washed with water. Then you would go into the holy place, and on the right was a table of unleavened bread, and on the left was a seven-branched lampstand called a menorah. And then to the front of them was the altar of incense where they would burn sweet-smelling smoke before the Lord as prescribed according to the Torah. If you draw a line from the altar of incense to the bronze altar and a line from the table of showbread to the lampstand, you have the shape of a cross. All right? Christ fulfilled this for us in him being the bread of life, the light of the world, praying, Father, forgive them, they know, what they know not what they do, shedding his blood for our sins, his side being pierced and water flowing from him. All right, when he died, the veil in the temple, which was built according to this pattern, uh, the tabernacle being the temporary complex, uh, was ripped from top to the bottom, revealing the fact they no longer had the Ark of the Covenant. But in their day, in the day of Moses, in the holiest of holies was a piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant, where the priest would enter once a year to offer, offer up blood on what's called the mercy seat before the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, beaten gold, and covered with a golden lid called the mercy seat. Inside that box were symbols of God in their life, as well as symbols of their sin. There was the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. There was the rod of Aaron, which had budded at night by itself, not planted or watered or anything, but bore almonds at night to show to the nation of Israel that he was the one to lead the priesthood. And there was a pot of manna, which was God's provision to feed them while in the wilderness. These three things were in that box. But they also symbolized Israel's sin because they rejected the manna, they were ungrateful, they rejected the leadership, 
They rose up in rebellion against Aaron and Moses, and even Aaron himself uh, was involved in that kind of stuff. And before they got the first copy of the Ten Commandments, they were broken. So once a year, they would come into this room. Uh, looking down on the mercy seat were these figures, cherubim or angels, gold figures, facing each other, facing the mercy seat, and they would offer the blood on the, on the mercy seat of the spotless animal that had died for the sins of the nation. The glory of God, what's called the Shekinah glory of God, uh, would look there on that sacrifice and would accept it for another year, and the priest would know they were accepted. It was a fearful thing. He could die if he did something wrong. Now, here's the story of that tabernacle and the story of the Ark of the Covenant. The yellow arrows or the gold arrows, that's a story of the tabernacle. The white arrows is a story of the Ark of the Covenant. They were together in Shiloh. When Israel inhabited the Holy Land, they established the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant in it at Shiloh. During the leadership of a wicked priest, a slacker priest named Eli, his sons were really the wicked ones, but Eli really dropped the ball, um, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. Israel took it into battle thinking it would be a good luck charm, and they lost it. The Philistines captured, captured their symbol for God. So then the tabernacle never had that in it again. They were without this in the tabernacle. So envision the holy of holies being empty because of sin. This is all important because God's truth is sequential. So the Philistines take it, take the ark to several places. You can see the arrows. And everywhere it went, things went wrong. Their idols fell over and broke. People got sick with tumors and hemorrhoids. Just terrible things happened. Ouch. Finally, they sent it back to Israel on an ox cart without any humans around it, and uh, the rest is history. So David sent for it and did it inappropriately, and it stopped and was left at the house of a man named Obed-Edom, who kept it for a season, and he was extremely blessed during the time it was in his house. In fact, he so enjoyed it that he became a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. All right. So when David got the ark to, to restore it to Israel's worship, he did not take it to Gibeon, which is where the tabernacle was. It had been moved from Shiloh to Nob and then from Nob to Gibeon. I'm thankful for Bible.ca, anyway, for this sketch. Wonderful. Uh, he didn't take it back into the tabernacle to put it in the Holy of Holies. He took it to Jerusalem and put it in a tent. Now, mind you, the tabernacle is still going on. The priests are still offering sacrifices. They're still doing their annual rituals. But they had been without the ark for a long time, right? And so they were continuing on worship the old way. But remember, truth is sequential. David got a taste of the new way where now you could go directly to the presence of God and worship him without all this other stuff. Now, at the time, it was being done. Now, David kept it in Jerusalem because he wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let him. His son Solomon did. So during David's reign, they accumulated all the materials 
for building the temple. And then when the temple was built, it was an enlargement of what the tabernacle was. The ark was put in that temple. Does that make sense? But during David's reign, for 40 years, Israel had this. Around this tent were worshipers. This thing grew to 4,000 musicians, 288 worship leaders, leadership. On a rotation basis, they, they cast lots or they drew straws to see who would serve when. The teachers served along with the beginners. And they worshiped God nonstop. In fact, when the temple went into operation, music was part of it. I'm not sure how much of a part it was prior to that. But they had a taste in their history of this. Now, here's the history of their temples. Israel had the tabernacle of Moses, and then 40 years, the tabernacle of David, and then the temple of Solomon. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. But then came along the Babylonian conquest, captivity, and Solomon's temple got rebuilt after that by Zerubbabel, but this time without the ark. Nobody knows where the ark is. Some of the lost books of the Bible say that Jeremiah hid it in a cave. Nobody knows where it is. Then Herod took Zerubbabel's temple and improved on it. So basically you have five structures. Two of them are tents. All right, now, pause. Jesus comes and fulfills the tabernacle by dying for the sins of the world. He's the light of the world. He is the sacrifice. He's the blood sacrifice. He's the offering. His word washes us from our sin. He is the bread of life, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is our altar of incense, and he gives us access into the Holy of Holies. According to Revelation, there is an Ark of the Covenant still in heaven. So this goes on for a number of years. The church grows. Jesus dies for our sins. It rises from the dead. The church grows with the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And not long, here comes in Acts chapter 10, Gentiles become believers. And not just believers, they become filled with the Holy Ghost believers. And so the mother church, the first church, in Jerusalem has a big meeting with their leaders and some of the men that have been used by God to bring the gospel to Gentiles and said, what do we do with them? Do we require that they keep the Torah? Do we require that they uh, become kosher? What do we do? And Because this is outside the lines here of Jewish Christianity, Gentiles. So, you know, what happens? Well, James, the brother of Jesus, remembered Amos chapter 9, and he quotes from it. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And verse 18 says, Known to God from all eternity are all his works. So God set this up. Now, some would say the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David is a household of David. You know, Jesus, Jesus brought in the lineage of David, which is great, true. Through him we are all saved, right? But there's something to this, I believe, that relates to the tabernacle of David because in Gentiles coming to the Lord 
it often comes when they observe believers worshiping God. And this is happening 24-7, so I don't think it's God's will that we set up a tent somewhere and try to sign people up to take a shift to worship God. Some churches have been run into the ground of people trying to do what they call rebuild the tabernacle of David when it's the church as a whole that is rebuilding the tabernacle of David. And 24-7, somewhere, somebody's worshiping God and giving Him glory. No longer on Mount Zion, but on planet Earth. Amen. So wonderful worship is the purpose of human history. As a praise team come forward, I would like for us just to bow our heads and think about what we've heard. Father, we thank you for your word and for our place in redemptive history. Help us, Lord, to respond appropriately, to be the kind of worshipers that you're looking for, who no longer have to go to Mount Gerizim or the Temple Mount or Mount Zion or even Mount Calvary. Oh, Lord, we come to you as we are, to the mountain not made with hands, <laughs> to the mountain in the heavens, the mountain of God, your presence, Lord. Lord, make us worshipers that reflect your plan. Thank you, Lord, for choosing us and saving us. Help us, Lord, to stop fighting about being chosen and just to accept it and to fall in love with you like never before because we know that you're our Father. It's who we are. We're your kids. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, when we were singing bilingual worship, I'm sure our accents weren't right. I don't know. But, um, in that part of it's who you are and it's who I am, when, when we came to the who I am part, the uh, Spanish is como soy. And what's that translated as? who I am, right? But also, como can mean like. It's what I'm like. And also, it can mean how. How is your day? So it's not only who I am, it's how I am. How are you? God's my father. How do you think I am? Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.
Thank <laughs> you.